Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Would you open your Bibles to the 45th Psalm? This morning, we will be in Psalm 45. And you could not have created uh, a, a more, I don't know how to describe it, but just how all the streams are crossing here to come to this one point. As we have started Advent and we have talked about uh, peace this morning, as we have talked about the peace that only the coming King has brought, the songs that we've sung about the King who is coming, all of these things, and then the Lord puts us in Psalm 45 this morning. He is so good, and this will be Lord willing, so helpful for us as a church. So as we are celebrating peace then this morning, peace is something that gets thrown around a whole lot during the holidays, right? We sing songs about peace. The, even, even the secular culture really drives at this idea of peace. You have songs like Merry Christmas, uh, No More War by Yoko Ono. I think that's the first time that's ever been talked about from this pulpit. Um, <laughs> But you have even secular uh, culture trying to grasp at this idea of peace. They want peace so badly. They, they long for peace. We get it in music and all different types of art. We get it in movies and television shows, all longing for peace during this time of year. And what's interesting is that similarly, this has been the heartbeat of our psalmist, as he has been longing, or the sons of Korah have been longing for peace over the last four psalms. And that's not all the sons of Korah, but one of, or three of them are. And we see this heartbeat for the longing for peace, just like our culture has. And this longing for peace, my friends, can only be given by God. And so this morning, as we watch how the psalmist changes his tune from a downcast soul, from a heart that is laid in the dust to a heart that's overflowing with a pleasing theme. This morning, we find out what this pleasing theme is and how it can bring us peace during this holiday season and how we can then go and speak of this pleasing theme to all of those around us. Would you read along with me as I read the inerrant, inspired, sufficient word of God to you this morning? Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, 
Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are, a f- are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, for the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. And many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Hear the word of God this morning. Now you might be thinking, what on earth is happening in Psalm 45? I did. When I first read through Psalm 45 and I was getting ready to bring this to you, I read it for the first time and said, oh Lord, help. What is happening here? And so I want to give you some good ways to think about this psalm. It's going to begin with the psalmist introducing to you his expectations for the psalm. He's going to be telling you, this is what I'm going to do. And then he's going to go into moving to describing who the king is, what he's like, what his work is, and what his throne is. Then we're going to hear about this queen who is dressed in robes of Ophir, right? This gold of Ophir and how she is a daughter of this other nation. We're going we're gonna to hear more about this queen and how you and I actually relate to the queen. And then we're going to hear in the end what the psalmist hopes to do with all of this. Now remember, this psalmist, so those kind of four sections are going to be the sections that you and I will traverse in this morning. And you must remember this psalmist, as we've been going through the Psalter, uh, uh, in these recent psalms, 42, 43, and 44, there has been a downcastness of his soul. He has said, why are you downcast, O my soul? He, he has been in the depths of despair. We've talked about this, the waters rushing over his head, him literally being laid in the dust, in the dirt. And then we have this totally tune change that comes from the psalmist, the same author, the sons of Korah. Now, we don't have the exact kind of uh, circumstances about why this psalm was written, but we're going to get some hints here. And as we go through it, we see that he has changed immensely. The circumstances haven't, as far as we know, have not changed. He's either deported in some different country as he longs to go back to Israel, as he wants to worship in the temple again where he used to lead worship. And as you know, the sons of Korah, and if you don't know, we've gone over this for a few Sundays that I've been up here. These are Levitical priests that are tasked with working as, as singing or, or leading the congregation in song and also protecting the temple. That's what these sons of Korah are called to do. So we get this son of Korah who is now going to embark in quite a different psalm. And he begins with, my heart overflows. It's beautiful. My soul is downcast, now my heart overflows. 
we see the heart and the soul when we're looking in the Old Testament are actually talking about the same thing. It's talking about the inner man. It's talking about kind of the control panel uh, for your life and in your deeds and your thoughts and your actions. All of these things are controlled in your heart or in your soul. And he begins with my heart overflows. Overflows is what it means, right? We don't have to do a ton of historical background work here and understanding what overflowing means, except for the fact that it means bubbling over, right? So this is a heart that is bubbling over now. How does a heart go, I want you to ask, if you're taking notes. How does a heart go from being downcast, depressed, melancholy, sad, broken? How does it go from that to a heart that's overflowing. How does that happen? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us. He says his heart is overflowing with a pleasing theme. He, he's getting ready to tell you about how he's about to sing this song for the king. And this pleasing theme, if you look in the Hebrew, I found this really interesting. This is going to, if you're just holding on to this, to later. This pleasing theme can actually be translated in the Hebrew as, my heart overflows with the good news. This pleasing is good, and this theme is news in the Hebrew. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. So this disposition change, then, of this pleasing theme that is literally overflowing out of the psalmist and is now being expressed in words, he is going to address these verses to the king. See, his disposition changes because he's actually no longer now focusing on the inward, which is okay. Don't hear me say that it's not okay to look in and focus on that. But it is going to change. There's going to be a change of disposition because now he's addressing the king. His focus has shifted from looking inside himself to now looking to the king. And as he looks to the king, he cannot wait He's, he's, I like this psalm because you can see him getting excited. He, he's excited to talk about this. He moves on into the second part of this verse where he says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So he's describing how he's going to be addressing this to the king um, and how he's going to be singing it like a scribe. Like a scribe would write down the Old Testament. There's a lot of imagery here that is talking about a scribe who would know his Old Testament well and that he could go to any part of that Old Testament and point somebody to the truths that are found there. And so this tongue that is ready to act like a scribe is going to be weaving so many different pleasing themes together for us this morning. He is going to be showing why he is so excited. So... As we see this heart changed by no longer focusing inward, but now that is focusing towards the king, it becomes overflowing with this good news, and he's ready to describe the king. So we see the intentions of the psalmist is to praise God, praise this king that he's longing for. So, verse 2 then, we get into who is the king? So we get a description of the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, 
This is very, you know, you're gushing over your king. You're excited about your king. You want to describe his beauty and and how handsome he is. And if you look at the Hebrew again, this is why I'm so thankful that you guys allow me to study God's word like this. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. When you look at men in the Hebrew, the word for men in Hebrew is Adam or Adam. And when you look at that word, it's actually in the Hebrew, it's in the singular. So instead of translating it, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, you could actually translate this as you are the most handsome of the sons of Adam. And again, this is going to be a little cord that we just hold on to as we work through this psalm. Grace is poured upon your lips. This is saying that this king, this king that he is praising, grace is flowing out of him. It has been poured on his lips so that he would speak gracefully to his people. He is ready to speak God's word and God's truth to his people. If you look um, in 2 Samuel, you'll see that, that David even talks about this reality that the Lord, the Spirit, has poured grace upon his mouth so that he could speak like a prophet to the people. This is this idea that a king would speak God's words to his people and ruling and reigning them. So again, he's gushing over not only his beauty, but the inward reality of this king, this godly king that he is, he is seeing and he is longing for. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Forever is a long time, right? That's a long time to be blessed by God forever. Gird your sword. So now the psalmist is going to move from kind of extrapolating about how beautiful and awesome this king is to what his job is. He's going to move to the job description of the king. In fact, he gives him an imperative, gird your sword on your thigh, right? This is the idea of putting on someone's belt uh, to hold their sword, which would be on their thigh, right? And, and, and getting ready for the work that he's called to do, which is battle. This, God, or this king is going to be going out to battle, He must be ready. He must have his sword on his thigh because he is a mighty one and splendor and majesty. And then he tells them, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Now, I find this really interesting, okay? Hang with me, guys. You're hanging with me. This idea of riding out victoriously. Well, what is the king supposed to do? What is he supposed or is called to do? He's called to ride out victoriously for what? For the cause of truth. Even thinking about our world today and trying to understand how people are trying to long and grasp for peace, but they have no foundation of truth upon to put that peace. So they grasp and try to reach for things and there's nothing there. Because it's not grounded in the truth. And the psalmist sees that too. He's saying, no, he rides out for the cause of truth. And that truth is going to be based upon God's righteousness. So when we look at the righteousness of God, that word is going to tell us that you would do right things. And you would do those right or moral things based upon God's law. So ride out for truth, which is based upon God's word, and then righteousness, the application of the morality of that based upon God's truth. And then you'll say, but Andrew, you skip meekness. And oh man, very interesting that the psalmist would add meekness here, a mild-manneredness, right? We, we don't think of that in a king. 
we think of a king as a guy who's going to charge out, dominate, win the war, right? But no, this king is going to ride out for the cause of meekness as well. Interesting. Interesting descriptions of the king and what he is called to do. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. This is him uh, talking about this king being powerful. The right arm is supposed to be kind of the conquering, the arm of strength. Let your arrows be, or your arrows are sharp. So the king not only is going to ride out victoriously for these causes, but he's going to slay his enemy, is what we see in verse five. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So this, this beautiful king who has a heart full of grace that will be pouring out, overflowing, okay? This beautiful king is going to ride out uh, for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He's going to slay his enemy. These are the descriptions of the king, of his work. And now we get the descriptions of his throne, and this is where we got to spend some time, friends. Because in verse 6, verse, or through verse 8, we see something change. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What? The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Wait, what's, what's happening? The psalmist is talking about a king. Does he actually change who he's addressing at this point? You need to ask that question. If you're studying God's word, you need to ask the question right now. Who's he addressing? What just happened? He's talking about a king that he's longing to see. And then we get to this point where he says, your throne, O God. We need to understand what he means by addressing the king now as God because he does not change who he's addressing. And we see that as you continue reading through six and into seven, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he goes to say, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. His God has given God this eternal forever throne. So the psalmist this entire time has been addressing the king and now he addresses the king as Elohim, which is the word for God, okay? And what's interesting is in the second book of the Psalter, which is what we are in now, the majority of the use of God in this second book of the Psalter is Elohim. In the first book of the Psalter, it was Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. But now we move to Elohim. Well, what does the word Elohim mean? A group of us men were meeting this week, and we talked about how Louis Burkhoff helps us understand what Elohim means. It means to be strong and mighty and to be feared. That is what Elohim means. And it's also noted that the use of Elohim is not used ever to refer, refer to a human person or king, but only to God. So what's going on here? It's helpful for us to put this psalm in its context of the Davidic covenant to understand things like this. Now, you've heard me go back to 2 Samuel 7 a few times from this pulpit as we've been going through the Psalter. And guess what? 
we're going to keep doing it. Because it's important to understand these psalms in their covenantal context. So, so let's read from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and on. And this is what it says. This is God speaking to David about this throne that we just read about in Psalm 45. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me." Your throne shall be established forever, end quote. The covenant is understood now as this covenant made with David is going to be fulfilled in kind of two ways. First, it's going to be fulfilled with Solomon, his son, who takes the throne. It's established with him. He continues this, but that's not where it ends. You can say that Solomon was a type And then the antitype, or it's typified, it comes to its completion in Jesus sitting on this forever throne. This Jesus came from David's offspring and has fulfilled this covenant. But we still need to understand that Elohim, what does this mean for Elohim? It can't mean Solomon. Elohim cannot refer to Solomon here because Solomon is a man. And Elohim is specifically for God. So what am I saying? What am I belaboring this point for? Friends, the king that the psalmist is pointing to is Christ, period, done, end of sentence. You might say, no, no, Andrew, you're taking it out of context. If you were there in that time, he was talking about some king that they were waiting for. No, he wasn't. He would have not referred to him as God. He wouldn't. It wouldn't have been referred to as God. This is the Christ. So when we're looking at this psalm, trying to figure out what type of psalm is this, many have said this is a royal psalm for a king. I'm going to add a couple descriptors to it. I think that this psalm is a royal messianic wedding. And if it just got weird, hang in there. It gets better, okay? So you're still not convinced. Andrew, you're spiritualizing this, okay? You spent too much time in the psalms. Now all you can do is point to Christ, all right? Well, let's go to what we've been studying as a body, the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter one. We've heard Pastor Joel just preach through Hebrews so well. It's been so encouraging. And we ended in 2 Samuel 7, pointing to Hebrews. Then we go to Hebrews, and now we're talking about Hebrews from Psalm 45. This is just too cool. So we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Quoting from Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Quoting from 2 Samuel 7 that we just read from. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says... Now, who's this son? Oh, we've been memorizing scripture together, have we not? 
Have we been memorizing Hebrews 1? Who's the son? Well, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, I can't make it any more specific. The son is Jesus Christ, okay? Following head nods maybe? No, no head nods, all right. Well, someone's following, I hope. Verse eight, but of the son, he says, boy, this is gonna sound familiar. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Friends, Hebrews just quoted Psalm 45, explaining to us who the king is. It's Jesus Christ. If we try to disregard what the New Testament says about the Old Testament, we're not interpreting Scripture correctly. You're saying, no, I just have to sit in the Old Testament. I can't take the New Testament to help me. Well, you're doing a different hermeneutic than Jesus and the apostles. So be careful. We look to the New Testament to interpret the Old. It is the best commentator on the Old Testament. And our inspired commentator in the book of Hebrews just made clear as day, the king in Psalm 45 is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Praise be to God. And just to add a little bit to it. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. That sounds like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Therefore, your Lord, or my Lord has told, I just butchered it, but you guys understand. I'm going to go to Psalm 2 now because uh, I, can't, I can't do that quote and not do it well. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a different one. Psalm 110 is the other one. Now I've got to go to Psalm 110. Hang with me uh, so I can get there. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what I was trying to read. So we have this idea again of therefore God, your God. It sounds a lot like Psalm 2, Psalm 110 has anointed you. If you look at the Hebrew friends, anointing, this word for anointed actually comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. What does that sound like to you? Messiah. Okay, so some commentators will actually say that this scripture is saying, instead of anointed, it's saying, therefore, God, your God, has messiahed you. Okay, has sent out Christ to be this Messiah king. To be this king who will bring forth uh, his beauty, will bring forth his grace on his lips, and will conquer his enemy, sin and death. And praise be to God, he has done that. So this king, the God King Christ, is the bringer of peace through his conquering of his enemy, which leads to the praises of his people. Okay, I hope I've established that Jesus Christ is the king in Psalm 45 through scripture, not just spiritualizing it. And then we get to this, just, it gets weird, right? We get to the queen. Who is this queen, Andrew? Okay, uh, maybe I'm buying in that, that the king is Christ. Well, then who's the queen? It's the church. I'm just going to give it to you. It's the church. 
and you're going, okay, I'm waiting. All right, cool, let's do it, okay? As at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. This is gonna get real beautiful real quick. So forget your past life is a command that is given. Okay, first he says, hear, consider, incline your ear. This is very proverbial. If you go to the Proverbs, you hear this again and again, Solomon talking to his son. But now this is talking to the daughter. Hear, consider, incline your ear, O daughter, who will be the queen. Forget your people and your father's house. This is the command of the work for the queen. So this daughter, who will be queen is commanded to forget her people and her father's house. She's instead is to desire her new king and his kingdom instead of her father's house and his kingdom, which has been conquered. So if we're thinking then that the queen of Christ is then to be understood as the church or the people of God, understand this. The people were not of the same people as the king and have been given a new identity and have been brought into a new kingdom because the king has taken this bride. She was from a different kingdom. She had a different king. She had a different father's house. Not any longer. She has been given a new kingdom. A kingdom that can't be conquered. A kingdom that is secure in this king who has conquered his enemy. This is so interesting as we think of our lives as Christians. We have now a new identity. We leave off the old man that was part of the old kingdom that worshiped the old king. And now we are part of the new kingdom of the king who has come and has conquered sin and death. We leave behind our father's house, church. We are no longer a part of the kingdom of Satan. We are now a part of the kingdom of Christ. Praise be to God. This is why Luther says, there is no mistake in this psalm. It is God, his church, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gotta quote Luther to help you out sometimes. Now, lest you think I've gone completely out of my mind, I want you today to go to Revelation 19. I want you to go to Revelation 21. And I want you to go to Revelation 22. And I want you to read about the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast, as the church is presented to her king in robes of white and in robes of splendor. There is a wedding happening and we long for it, friends. We long for the day that we're presented to our king when he comes again. Now, another place that you might uh, be aware of would be Ephesians chapter 5. Now, most of us have heard Ephesians chapter 5 in relation to the fact that we are learning about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman as we are married and became one flesh. And we're taught different things within that marriage of what we're to do. Women are taught to submit to their husbands. Husbands are taught to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And what typically happens right after that sentence in counseling or when you're just encouraging a man who's going to be leading his life well and you just pour on the weight of that verse and say, yep, you are not gonna be able to do that, brother. 
you are not going to be able to fulfill that task lest you have the Holy Spirit who can help you in this endeavor. It is a weighty task to lead your wife well. And amen. And that is a good application to this scripture. But I'm going to tell you that this scripture actually points to something different to what the meaning of marriage is what it's supposed to be doing, what it's supposed to be pointing us to. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, I'm going to read a bit here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that we might present the church or that so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Underline, highlight, italicize, whatever you do, dog ear. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery that we find in Ephesians, which is quoting Genesis about the first marriage that ever happened, two people becoming one flesh, the mystery that's happening here is the fact that that marriage from the very beginning is actually pointing to Jesus Christ and his church. What? That is what marriage does. It points to Jesus and his bride, the church. And so when we get the application that wives are so, so supposed to submit to their husbands, we get that application as the church is to submit to its husband, Christ, in all that is said and done by what is poured out by his gracious lips for our ears to hear. So that's why we see in Psalm 45 when it comes to this daughter who is now becoming the queen, who is leaving behind her father and her father's house and is actually becoming beautiful, the king will desire the beauty. Why? Because the king provides her with her beauty. He sanctifies her by the washing of the word and she is now presented without spot or wrinkle or blemish. She is beautiful to the king because he has sanctified her. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Submit to him. This is beautiful how Psalm 45 actually points to us being married to Christ, us the church being married to Christ. So this queen then who is called to submit to her head, which is actually Christ, this submission of the church shows us that the church is being sanctified by Christ by washing them in the word so that the queen might be presented to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy. Now, as we continue with this kingly, uh, royal, um, messianic wedding psalm, 
we get to what happens because of this royal wedding. This, friends, I I can't tell you how much verse 16 actually encouraged me this week. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all of the earth. The psalmist is encouraging the queen, you will leave behind your family sometimes as you become part of this new kingdom. Not everyone will go with you. In fact, they will mock you and scorn you and show you that what you're doing is crazy. How would you ever become a Christian? Why would you ever do that? That silly myth. Maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience in my family. But we see, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. So although this queen will lose their old family, although this church will lose their old family, they will gain a new one. Many sons will go out from the church. They will be made princes in all the earth. And the sons will continue the work in which they have been brought up in. This gospel work of proclaiming the gospel of the conquering king who saved a people, who has an everlasting throne. This is, again, to to quote my German brother here, Luther, is why he says in his famous psalm, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. He's pointing to this reality that we are going to have to leave things behind. If you are a member of the church, you are the bride of Christ. And there are steep calls to your calling to be this bride. You will lose things. You will lose loved ones who don't want to follow you into this royal wedding feast. They won't want to be there in the end where the bride is presented to Christ in robes of splendor being sanctified by his word. They won't want to be a part of that. But don't worry, you will gain a new family in the body of Christ, in the church of Christ. So when we see that the king is Christ, that the queen is the church, and the sons then who go out to all the earth are actually fulfilling what? The mission of the church going out into all nations and calling people to a submission of the good news that Christ has come, that his throne is forever, that he has conquered his enemy, that he has taken the church to be his bride and he sent out many to call others to him. We see the fulfillment of the promises made throughout the Old Testament. I told you to hold on to those little strings. This is where we're coming back to those little strings. The promise to Adam that his son shall crush the head of the serpent. Oh, he is the most handsome of the sons of Adam. And his arrows are true and they will destroy and have destroyed the enemy. We see in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 the promise that was made to Abraham. That Abraham would have as many sons as there were stars in the sky and that he would be a blessing to all the nations. We see this as this conquering king rides out and calls many people to himself. And there are many sons that come to know Christ. And then finally, we see the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. In this eternal throne, we see the God-man, Jesus Christ, has come and fulfilled that forever throne. And he will never get off of it. It is his. He rules with the scepter of uprightness, and he has dashed out his enemy's teeth, as the Psalms will say. 
So, we come to know Christ the King. We come to know the church, the Queen. We come to know the mission of the church to go out and to make His name known in all the generations, which is what the psalmist wants to do by singing the psalm. I want you to go out and sing of this truth. He has a pleasing theme. He has the good news of Jesus Christ overflowing in his heart when he sings this psalm and weaves together all of those little strings that we saw throughout this psalm. So what do we do as we come and we light the candle of peace? As we celebrate the coming of the God King? As he came incarnate and lived among us and lived a perfect life fulfilling the law that you and I could never fulfill. And then he died on the cross and he is now risen to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns on that throne with that scepter. He has gone out in order to ride out victoriously for truth and he accomplished that. He came out to ride out victoriously for righteousness. He did that too. And boy, did he do it as a meek God king dying on the cross. He has fulfilled all of these things for you, brother and sister in Christ, fellow member of the body of Christ, part of the queen of Christ. So in a culture that is longing for peace that they can never attain, How will you stand out this holiday season? How will you live a life that is the aroma of Christ to those around you? How will you have a heart that is overflowing with praise and adoration for the king whose throne is forever and ever, who has conquered his enemy through his death on the cross, the one who lives righteousness or loves righteousness and hates wickedness, the one who will clothe you in righteousness if you forget your old self and submit to him as your Lord and Savior and King? Friends, Would you share that? Would you be like the psalmist who can't help but get excited about Psalm 45? Would your tongue address the king? Here's something practical. Would your tongue sing of the king this holiday season? Go out and carol. You're doing kingdom work. You are singing about the coming of the king. That he came and that he comes again. And that's what we long for as we sing this psalm. Oh, God, come quick. We need you, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbly as we expound Psalm 45 with fear and trepidation. God, may your word feed us this morning. Would you encourage us that even in the Old Testament, we see Christ Jesus. We see him as the conquering king who has already conquered and will come again to call us into his glorious light. We pray, Father, for those in this congregation that are not a part of the bride, who are hearing this and and might be thinking, that is some of the craziest stuff I have ever heard. Or maybe they're hearing it saying, I want that. I want to be a part of of the kingdom of God. I need the peace that transcends all understanding and only comes through Christ Jesus on the cross. Father, would you give that person faith this morning? Would they be able to put their trust? Would they be able to be obedient to their God King, Jesus Christ? And we pray this in his name, amen.